you get off on the weird? Monsters, Halloween, horror. You've heard of word porn, car porn, earth porn. Now prepare yourself for monster porn. Is this really a good idea? Weird fiction and horror podcast. Created by the Backwards Hat Guy, Matt Cummins. Are you trying to teach psychic powers to animals? Puggles, the abomination trapped in the body of an adorable teacup piggy. Good for humans. And myself, lead occultist, Brett Norwood. Today's story is Pastorus, a God-Shaped Hole by Brett Norwood. Good day, restless horde of seething monsturbators. Welcome to episode 50. Yeah, that's right. 50 of Monster Porn, Not Really Porn, the podcast. Unless you want it to be porn. I'm Brett, Chief Creep in General, and this is Matt, Lieutenant of the Backwards Hat. So far backwards that it's nearly forwards. We started this podcast almost two years ago as a way to circumvent gatekeepers of the fiction world. And we thank you for going on this journey with us. You, our listeners, have made this special. Without you, we'd just be shooting it off into the void, which is incidentally how Puggles once knocked up one of the Ancient Ones. And it means a lot to us to have you here. It has been a weird trip. It gets weirder all the time. And you all have enabled us. So you have that on your conscience. Ugh, I'm sorry. I want to thank everyone who has rated and reviewed... I know it can be annoying to have to do and hear about on every single podcast that you listen to, but it does help. It also makes our efforts feel worth it. So please, if you enjoy the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast platform. Mine is my grandmother's 1987 General Electric toaster oven. You get podcasts on that? Wait, isn't your grandmother dead? Oh yeah, how else would it work? Anyway, thank you for... No, Grandma, I won't listen to cereal. It's too popular. Anyway, thank you for your support, Monster Baiters. We wouldn't have gotten anywhere without you. And without further ado, on to the show. We join our intrepid heroes. Uh, sorry, I misspoke. We join our insipid heroes in the final leg of the King Quest. A journey to find the answers Matt seeks regarding Stephen King's evil plot. To grasp onto the title of King of Horror for eternity. Now, upon the road to desolation, as King's main mansion draws near, the party and its demon pig flees across the desert. Of, like, Maine, I guess. And the gunslinger follows. Brett didn't say anything and just took off. That's not like him. I mean, typically, he drags me into these crazy things. Yeah, oh, oh sure. Oh. Anyway, uh, forget the six and a half feet of Q-tip and let's get on with it. I've got God things to do. Oh, man. I'm glad we're not in the car. I can't imagine being hotboxed in there with you. What did you eat? Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, just that clown. You know you ate something... From Stephen King's imagination, right? Oh, uh, you think the clown wasn't real? He's as real as you and me, buddy. It's all real somewhere or other. In fact, 
He was like me, merely not quite as high up the old pole. Oh, let's call him a budding destroyer of worlds. A journeyman. Ah, uh, nope, nah. I'm not even considering that. I'm on the knife's edge as far as sanity goes. How long have we been following the beam? Oh, just a couple of days since... Oh! Oh! Oh, God! Oh, oh me! My stomach is not liking this. Matt! Matt! Can you hear me? Uh, this is not the kind of flirting I'm into. What was that? Uh, oh, uh, oh, <laughs> oh, just some gas. Hey, who's that? If you were any louder, I'd have not been able to hear the beam. Oh, sweet Jesus, it's him. It's the gunslinger. Mayhap I am, mayhap I ain't. Oh, uh, yeah, oh, nothing, to, nothing to see here. I'm just a pig. Oink, uh, oink, 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 oink. Why, why, why are you looking at Puggles like that? There is something strange about that companion of yours. Oh, you have no idea. So I have a million questions for you. I'm a huge fan of yours. First, how do you say your name? Is it Dechain, Dechain, Dechain? Also, what is your son? Like, he has four parents, dude. That makes no sense. Also, is the Crimson King the same as Pennywise or is Mordred Pennywise? Oh my god, speaking of Pennywise, I think he's dead and the pig killed him. I, uh, I can't say I can it. Ixnay on the egg pay. Oink, oink, oink. Oink, oink, oink. What's that? <laughs> you didn't really just speak in. Hey, your buddy manifested me as a pig, all right? It comes with the territory. Oh, oh, I got it, I got it. Oint day, it gay, or yay, antis pay in an, in an, well, uh, odd way. The swine speaks, but his flesh is not true. Oh, he's touching the big irons. His hand's all fucked up too. Sorry, but I am totally geeking out. I see you now, pig. Though I don't know whether you serve the red or the white, but there is a terrible being of the red inside of you. Let it out, swine! Oh, uh, don't worry, oh, son of Eld. I was thinking the same damn thing. In one end and out the other! Oh! oh, God! Puggles, dude, go behind the tree or... Oh, my God! Is that... Did you just shit out Brett? Oh, sweet gods, the air! The air is sweet. As a parasitic wasp swoops in and embraces the condemned caterpillar, so did the onyx starship wrap its larger white counterpart in spindly black limbs. Within the prey vessel, one could scarcely feel the contact or the ship's shudder due to the gravity loads, which shifted along with the mass of the ship. However, the pastoris was not caught unaware. In a language of light, the heads-up display announced the breaching of the hull. The pastoris, who could be mistaken for a teenage girl from faraway Earth, lifted her eyes like pallbearers lift a coffin toward the mat of blinking stars. Damn, she hissed. The wanderer is lost. 
she chastised herself. It was a reference to a cliché known on a certain world where she had been raised from her earliest years. In its full expression, the saying conveyed the idea that whenever one meanders without an aim, he will definitely fall into circumstances for which he would not have aimed, and, as the fable that originated the proverb illustrated, such may be deadly circumstances, like these. The pastress rose from the commander's kiosk and faced the hall-like interior of the fuselage, glowing dull blue with the running safety lights against the gunmetal finish on the surfaces. Thus facing into her vessel, she brought up her firearm, a simple powder-explosive-driven projectile device from Earth, just in time for the laser cutters to complete the breach of the hull. A section of wall panel clanged onto the running boards as callow mist poured into the circulating air. A sharp and doom-colored synthetic tone struck through the craft like a slap to the lowest string of a guitar. She thought she saw the first intimation of one of the intruders in the mist and did not hesitate to fire. The shot indeed struck true, and the hovering shadow fell to the floor with a smaller clang. The ominous battle trumpet intoned again. There were others. They began to manifest in the mist, black triangles about the size of a humanoid hand, which hovered reservedly in the air. Three of them, and then six, and then about ten. They broke into the open air out of the cloud, under the piercing blue light. About a dozen black triangles floated at head height in the fuselage, one blinking colored light at the peak of each. The dread tone struck again, and this time modulated upward through a curt, dissonant melody that would raise the neck hairs of a human or human-like being, that would make the bottom of one's gut drop, and such was the sound's design. The pastor sneered, twitching her nose to the side, her jade eyes sparking, and she shot again and again. Two more of them, these beings she recognized as the pirate refugees of Gemma Antigone, clanged on the walkway, dead. She had crossed paths with them far from their locus of Gemma Antigone, but she also was far from home, whatever that might be. It had been months now, in the Earth's reckoning of time, since she left Naomi, her target and dare she say friend, having failed to exterminate her and the psychic virus that had been planted in her. And not failing by any technical failure, but because the pastress bore now, at some level, the terrible curse of hope, which spoke of her saving Naomi from the disease Ota Asnash had sent to Earth, rather than observing the protocol under which she'd been sent to sanitize the Earth under the muzzle of a gun. But now, aboard the Peristeron, she had failed again. Indecisiveness and malaise had left her adrift, and she stumbled into a hornet's nest. They say the pastoress comes by night, and if you see the pastoress in the night, you must despair, for you have wandered far beyond salvation's reach. But now, by error and by chance, it is she who has wandered and finds herself crossing the path of death. The pastor spat. I find the race of you so pathetic. She held her pistol trained on Naomi from the foot of her bed. It was the middle of the night in the middle of winter. Naomi sat up in the blue-tinged dark and stared passively. Damn you! 
the pastors repeated again. Why can you not be the exception who consents not to death? I almost believed the orders of the dawn misgiven. I had, had hoped you would be different, strong against Ota Asnash. But I have had a bad night. I have seen things that make me sick about humanity. And now there is you. And you now fill me with distaste. The race of you, so pathetic. Yet, too, so much potential that makes me sick. It makes all things of this worse. I could... I should just end you, Naomi. Be done. But I find again I cannot. Naomi was mute and showed no reaction. I... I know not what to do, the pastors continued, breaking into a tone never before heard, confessional and strangely emotional. Now, at this, Naomi's listless eyes snapped to her for a heartbeat and then left as quickly. Oh, to Asinash, from his home beyond the worlds, has infected you through his implementers with the desire to join him, to die. Do not tell me you want that, for it is not you who wants that. It is him. Do you truly understand what has infected you, Naomi? What it is you are fighting? The lights have fallen dark on a thousand worlds because of Ota Asnash. I came late to Victory Prime. The night priests and the implementers were already there. Nigh thirty percent of Victory Prime was infected when I alighted on their world. The people thought that their hatred for their lives had come from their own hearts and reason. For why would they not? And because it was their own true decision to perish, their own heart and reason, it was unassailable. Instead, it was Ota Asenash, the mind of him working into them, reinforced by the night priests. The people began the undertaking of killing themselves, masses of them. They were happy to have found the salvation from suffering, and pleased that their two hundred thousand year civilization had finally reasoned its way to that answer. Some took it upon themselves to help by taking as many others as they could with them on the way out. Governors who did not realize that they had been infected and their cabinets infected found themselves passing destructive legislation. Industry choked itself out. Creation took a long nap. The people resented the rulers and boss men, and it made them the happier to go. The slave classes ceased to work and starved and languished. The master class gave up enforcement and merely despaired their losses. A whole world gave up. They sat down and gave up and died because it seemed preferable. And in just this way, a thousand other worlds have also already fallen. It takes worlds, but... But, Naomi, it is heart by heart that each world falls, one at a time. You have the power to stop this. I have seen it in another and want to believe in you now. You have the power to stop this, the pastoress said, pointing with her free hand to Naomi's breast. And I have the power to stop this. 
She pointed at her pistol, still vaguely pointed at Naomi. Naomi trembled in the winter dark, half-wrapped in her comforter. It's easy for you to say, Naomi said slowly. Just get over it. Do better. Keep trying. Because you can't feel. You're what? A machine, basically. And you don't know anything about me. You can keep your lectures and just go. The pastor sneered and drew a deep breath through her teeth. I did not say it was easy. Neither was it easy to say. Now the pastor regretted going at Naomi's insistence. A human being, one who did have the full range of human emotional responses and social understanding, should have stayed. Should have been present for Naomi, even in spite of the attempts to push her away. Now, given the distance of light years and benefit of hindsight, the pastoress could see that. Instead, however, the pastoress muttered as she slipped away from the apartment. You also know that I'm not manufactured entirely without emotional response. The Peristeron cruised through space with the speed of the graviton and the grace of a passerine. It was a long, angular vessel with a wide wingspan, like a prehistoric bird, white with swept-back wings, a red running stripe down each side of the fuselage beginning at the geometric nose. A sea-blue screen picked out the cockpit forward on the craft. Within it, meditated the pastoress. Stars slid by the screen like rain over a windshield on the highway. Bathed in the blue light of the console, she folded her hands in front of her collar. The pastorist should have been giddy, inasmuch as one possessing her biological hardware could be so. But instead she found herself feeling something approaching apprehension. She was going to see God. His birth name was forgotten. They called him Elan Oash, and his palace was in the Beta Eridanus system. He held the title of Wota, an ancient word of disputable meaning. When the pastoress had told Naomi that she had had the good fortune to have met God once, and had resultantly become a fan of his, Naomi did not seem to believe her, or, at least, Naomi seemed to have assumed this man could not possibly be the same being known on earth as God. The pastoress had merely been confused, or naive, perhaps. But the pastoress had read that whole book, the Bible, and studied passages of it quite intensely, and it was clear to her. The book told her exactly who and what God is. There was no question. Soon after she had learned that there were people on earth dedicated to Elon, the son of Ash, she knew she would select the disguise that placed her among those people who were dedicated to him. It never occurring to her all the while that there may be restrictions or implications she did not yet understand as an outsider upon wearing the cassock of a priest. The pilgrimage to Beta Eridanus was for a purpose, and much of her apprehension had to do with the outcome of that purpose. She had a question for God, for Elon Oa Ash. In effect, that question was whether the human soul can be saved, whether Naomi, specifically, could still be saved. She flashed back to childhood, 
not that she was ever a child in the way that humans are. In a small, well-lit chamber made of the pale, lightweight, wood-like tissue of the Gigiji organism, a woman stood with her shoulders back and neck erect over the kneeling pastoress who was not yet the pastoress. This woman wore something like gold chiffon. It was beautiful, but not overly fine, ornate, or delicate. It was a sort of uniform, but one meant to convey worthiness in addition to authority. On this woman's collar there was an emblem representing a knife cutting at the stem of a stylized pictograph of a flower-like vine organism native to the former world of Gugaya. The pastoress, on her haunches, had not the cassock, but something like a canvas robe. The woman said in her language, which was formal melisite, The dawn of this world is coming. The pastoress repeated, in the same language, staring through the woman's midriff. The dawn of this world is coming. Yet the night is not the all, the woman said. Yet the night is not the all, the pastoress repeated. The woman addressed her by her unique identifier, a string of glyphs and base twelve numerals, which is neither readily translatable nor readily transcribable, and said, The quarry yields. I terminate the pastress answered. The quarry flees, the woman said. I pursue until the quarry yields, the pastress answered. The quarry resists, the woman said. I persist until the quarry yields. The quarry pleads for its life, the woman said last, and the pastress's mouth hesitated to form a word. A wry smile upturned one corner of the woman's mouth. It was not her teacher, as it may seem to be, but rather something more like a software tester. She was only probing what was already encoded within for defects. This premise is impossible given the parameters, Pastoris finally answered. The woman laughed. That is, in itself, the correct answer. Very good. No being which glows with the touch of Oda Asinash in your senses should truly care for its life any longer. Now then, you present the ultimatum, as is customary. You pose to the quarry, fight or die. The quarry does not fight. It yields and dies, the pastorist said. Yes. The quarry fights, the woman said. Same as before, the pastorist said. The premise is impossible given the parameters and is suggestive of an error. Yes, the woman said. But it is a test, a final test, a safeguard, before you take the ultimate measure. The pastoress watched the stars with half-lowered eyelids. An error, she thought. Impossible, given the parameters. When it first entered her mind, it had been almost unthinkable. But if the parameters were wrong, that is, everything she believed in, it could only be because they were wrong from the hand of those who put them there in her mind. The mission of the perfect dawn, which sent her to the planets to cut off the spreading vine of Ota Asnash, would have to have been wrong. But how? Why? The implication was worse than the initial revelation, because naive error could not be probable, not at this scale. She had been lied to. If the infected could be saved, even once in a while, 
spurred to choose their lives over the pull of the void. It entirely upended the protocols of the dawn. Elon would know. His wisdom encompassed all possible questions. Even hidden things, lies, conspiracies, lay bare before him. The pastors provided an address to the light speaker on the console. In terse flares of rainbow colors, the acknowledgement came from Beta Eridanus. She had reached the Acolytes. She conveyed into the lightspeaker her identity and her desire to have audience with Elon Oa Ash. She expected there to be a puzzled pause when the Acolytes learned the guest knocking on their door was a synthetic exterminator of the dawn. But there was no hesitation in the reply. From the office of the Acolytes, the response was immediate and unanticipated. Elon Oa Ash had crossed the threshold. He had died. The line of communication was dropped, and after several minutes of staring into space, she slapped the engine throttle, killing the propulsion, leaving her drifting. The stars again became distinct, narrow points, vastly distant, all of them. It was long ago he had held her. Great arches held up the vaulted ceiling veined with gilded trim and full of ancient frescoes, wherein humanoids with monstrous yet halo-wrapped heads in white or violet robes hailed each other with right hands raised in blessing, flower-like organisms raining from their mouths to alight on the soil and sprout into lofted, sponge-like trees in which creatures of the air could sing and rest. The acolytes, thirteen of them, tall, stick-like things like men, circled in the center of this vast hall, dwarfed by its architecture, and spoke in hushed tones. Behind them, at the head of the chamber on the dais, there was an empty throne. Again he is absent, spoke the acolyte, called Emirate Dash Gazar. Any guesses? said Tiar. Glancing across his colleagues' faces, The Gaguji tree, the rocks of the river Ascalon. The children's playground at Tishi. What shall we tell Huhuma? The party of delegates is here for his audience now, said a third, Ruhr. Dashkasar, the first, spoke again. We must entertain them in the narthex. Tyr, Ruhr, take Vashta and Unan and search for the Holy One. I will take on Huhuma if the rest of you are cowards. They broke. Dashkasar was walking away before any could object, smoldering over being the one to handle the delegation, though he had chosen the lot himself, with the dark pride of a martyr. Meanwhile, two of the acolytes, Rur and Vashta, hurried from the secret rear exit of Elon's attached private chamber out into the market, and with swift sandals sped toward the edge of the monastery city. Do not look like so, novice, Rur addressed to Vashta panting, sweat pouring from his bald brown brow and falling onto his ochre robe. Dash Kazar is frustrated with the master from years of service and feeling he is the only rational-minded one of us in the lot. But the master knows what he does. It is not as if at the gambler's booths we'll find him. Lord, you know I am with you on this, the younger acolyte returned, not breathing nearly as hard as his mentor. But it is no small matter to stand up to the party of the last living premier of Gugaya, 
No, Rur answered, with a sizable, acknowledging breath, and muttered, It is no small thing. The sacred Guguji tree was not far, by the crystal creek outside of the city wall, but it was on their way they met their lord. Elon Oash tarried near the jeweled wall by the pillar of the grimacing, eight-eyed brass guardian. He was surrounded by children, young ones who had not yet lost their third antlers, and they were very excited. Elon smiled, towering over them, and shook his hands, and involuntarily his white beard as well. With a blink of his inner eyelids, he raised his head and cast the same smile toward his fast-approaching acolytes. Great Wota, Rur addressed his master, using the ancient title. As it was, the Wota Oaash shook his head as if dispelling the honorific, and briefly and very casually raised his right hand in blessing. The party of the Premier awaits you, Rur announced. Dash Kazar is entertaining the party. Very good, answered Elon Oaash, stepping through the children, chattering questions at him, as if they were the parting sea. He waved them on with his hand. Some of them were already ignoring him, running down the street to toss a ball. As the men entered into the gates of the monastery city, Elon said to the novice Vashta, without pulling his smiling eyes up from the dusty road, Young friend, you wonder about me. Vashta raised his eyes and his mouth fell open, but he did not know what to say. Rur glanced between them surreptitiously. But Vashta's inability to answer his lord proved moot, for shortly within the city walls they encountered a shipping caravan heading between terminals of the shipping port through the marketplace. It had the hallmarks of a military operation. A handful of ashen-uniformed mercenaries escorted an industrial crate on a four-man dolly. They were struggling through the narrow aisles of the crowded produce stands, a way in which they should not have been traveling. Clearly these soldiers were having a day, not going as they would have liked. Whatever had brought them to this. The caravan got and held the two acolytes' attention immediately. The Wota was doubtlessly equally aware, yet appeared much less curious and concerned. There was a beast of burden, known as a Megalony, tied out near one of the stalls. A four-legged, hump-backed, and hammer-headed thing. When a tussle broke out at the booth, the creature was spooked and immediately bucked into the way of the caravan before jerking at the end of its rope. The industrial crate began to tip on its dolly. But before the acolytes could discourage him, for it was a mum part of their charge that they were to protect the Woda, Elon Oaash jaunted over and caught the edge of the dolly, bowing with the weight like an old tree before stabilizing it and smiling ear to ear at the stunned mercenaries. As a soldier took the weight from him, the others glanced at each other and didn't know what to say. The one who had taken the Woda's place only uttered a quick thanks. Another mumbled after a moment. That's the... the... isn't it? But it wasn't over for the mercenaries. As one, who must have been the officer, barked at the others to get the crate farther yet away from the animal, the Megalony rallied again tugging its fetters, and shoved the crate, which tipped toward the Wodas turned back. Ruhr pulled him aside as a soldier rushed to take the weight, but the crate fell, and the lid popped away as it hit the ground. What came forth, into the dust of the street, and the danger of sandal steps, was small and blue, 
It looked like a block of glass or crystal. Innocently, Ilanoa Ash plucked it up from the dirt and held it up for the mercenaries to take. Is that... Bastion now stuttered, clinging to Rur's side. A soldier stepped forward to reclaim the item. But now the Wota stared into it, assessing what it was he held. Ah, newly living one, he said in a soft, low voice. One should be so good as to bless your birth. Sir, Rur interrupted, uneasy. This is no babe, and the premier awaits. Truly, Elon answered. We'll take that now, master, the mercenary inserted, all business but careful in addressing the Wota. What is your name, child? The Wota wondered, examining the crystal block. He seemed to have seen something and muttered, No, no, I can't pronounce that. Therefore I will call you unspeakable. He laughed at himself. Sir, Rur tried again. This is no person but a weapon of war, a machine, and one of violence. Yours, but a living one, my friend, the Wodo replied. It has not the capacity for either suffering or joy that it should ever find you, master. Please, the delegation has been waiting. Do you fear Brother Dashkazar so much? The Wodo spoke. Let Dashkazar worry for Dashkazar. Let the Premier worry for the Premier. He turned his attention to the block he held in his palm, raised toward heaven. Dear unspeakable, little one, this is my blessing, that you thrive and overcome this world, and the suffering is not too great for you, and you find the deep soul slumber of the ancient Wotaim. There was a silence among the mercenary transport and the acolytes until the soldier said again, a little more insistent. I'll take that now, great Wota. Thank you. Smiling and thoughtful, Wota Oa Ash slowly lowered the blue solid into the man's patient hand. He quickly delivered it to a subordinate, who just as quickly returned it to its padding within the crate. Just then a set of colors flashed over the object. Oa Ash grinned with teeth and answered her. Yes, child, I know. Then he said to his acolytes, who were practically pulling him toward the palace doors. Yes, yes, yes. Now we go, I suppose. As they left down the street, the shipping escort could hear the master begin to teach his acolytes. Tell me, if you have wisdom, what is good in life? They didn't hear how the acolytes answered, if they did at all. The pastress took a deep breath in the face of the black, blue light gentle on her face. There was no question. She knew who he was. The Bible of the earthlings was very specific in its definition of God. It said that God was two things. First, a spirit. And second, a man. The man upon whom you see the spirit alight and remain, the book said. It also said, in even more clear terms, a simple, unitary definition that none could mistake. It said, God is love. 
God is the Spirit of love, and he is also the man upon whom the Spirit of love not only rests, but remains. The Woda had been engineered for it, born unlike the many, invulnerable to what they called in their dogma the sting of the passions of agrees, which separates the many from the blessed soul sleep of the Wotaim. The Wota was the man of pristine love. And the pastoress, since that time when she was still a mere child, had been obsessed with the idea, this idea called love, which seemed so apparent a word to other beings, to those endowed with emotional capabilities alien to her. They seemed to understand it, what it meant, but at the same time seemed so incapable of recognizing it. But to her, as an outsider, she felt she knew it immediately when she saw it, like one can immediately recognize a foreign language being spoken by name, but not necessarily the significance of the words. And the first she had ever known it was in the Great Wota. It took the form of doing something he didn't have to do, and against the urging of everyone around him, for someone no one would expect him to care about. For a long time, the pastoress let the Peristeron drift through interstellar space. Briefly, she resolved to contact the Dawn, but then stopped herself. It would do nothing to hear from them but confuse her all the more. So she turned her port to the Dog Star and idled. Where does one go from here? The whole universe began to dance slowly in a comfortable spiral around the nose of the craft. What would the great Woda say to my tribulation? She wondered. What she heard in answer was silence. Her imagination offered as little as the cold field of stars. He was also a foreign language. After some time like this, directionless, that was when she crossed the path of the survivors of Gamma Antigone. Two of them fell to the walk with a clang, more poured in with jaundiced miasma, little colored lights flashing at their tips. Their former world had been desolated by Ota Asnesh as well. Now they had themselves devolved into another type of plague. They were energy parasites. They would slaughter the crew of a ship, siphon the reactors, and then commit the rest to scrap parts, some of which could be sold. Of course, being machines, it had not been their own race which fell prey to the sickness of Ota Asnesh, but rather it had been their masters, the hands who had crafted them and fed them on electromagnetic charge. There was a reason their triangular bodies were roughly sized to fit in a hand. The pastors would run out of ammunition before she ran out of invaders. Now the number had swollen from about a dozen to a couple dozen. With the eerie patience of insentient machines, they hovered hastelessly toward the cockpit, unconcerned by their fallen, not afraid for their own lives, for their lives were one and their lives were none. She shot two more out of the air, and lost a third bullet to the ductwork behind them. The dread tone that was their herald resounded once more. Psychological warfare against inferior beings possessing such things as fear. The pastors thought, You have picked the wrong vessel to terrorize. I am the terror. Yet there was something there that should not have been. There was a nagging feeling growing from the pit of what would have been her stomach, a sickness in her spine and not something familiar to her, but something new. And it was married to the thought of having failed Naomi, 
of having failed to find her answer, of having failed to return to Earth and find her again. By this point in time, the breach in the hull and invasive mist would have killed a pilot dependent upon respiration, if the pirates had not. Her last bullet fired. She threw the pistol at the lead triangle, which struck it, jolting it but not causing it to fall, before clattering somewhere down the ship on the floor. The pastors growled. The phalanx of Gamma Antigoneans halted in a row. Two more farther back emerged from the fog. Syringes hung on mounted arms from their underside interface ports. That won't work on me either, I'm afraid, the pastors muttered. But a third lagged behind. It had a black tube, which she recognized as a resonance cannon mounted from that same port. She nodded her head to the side and admitted, That might. She started to run, not that there was anywhere to run, but to try to outstrafe the cannon long enough to think. But the ship went blurry. The pastress exploded into a hovering, trembling, bluish gel-like mass in the air, undulating with the interference patterns caused by the resonance cannon. There in the fluid, one could see a small blue solid, which, though rounded now, one might recognize as the same substance as that crystal block once held by the hand of God. One of the black triangles drew near, as if to examine this device. The pastors could not escape the knowledge that if the curse of Ota Asnash had done its work on Naomi while she was gone, there might not be a Naomi when she came back. That was a possibility, and one that would have stopped any normal friend from leaving at all, who had operational human-emotional responses, though the pastress did not recognize that last part. She was not there yet. But now the sinking feeling crescendoed into desperation. That she was locked up, trapped in this vibrating state, and it was only a matter of moments before the nearing device determined how to disable the pastress, the true pastress, that little blue object once named with love unspeakable. I can't do it, she thought. I can't fight. They have me. There could only be resignation, resignation to a future she did not like. Without eyes, she could not see, but she could hear the EMF heartbeat of her captors, though distorted, and triangulate from it to their positions. The near one was attempting to interface with her primary module. As the technology of two very different civilizations, she doubted it would succeed. However, this meant it would likely be forced to fall back upon the solution of terminating her through either brute force or EMF interference. He must have succeeded at one of these approaches. The pastress lost all senses. The man had long lines on his face. His Fu Manchu-like facial growth fluttered, though the air seemed still. They were indoors. She looked up at him. Oh, you function? He said. Stay still. He stood up straight, facing away, but turning over his shoulder to see her. He tagged on under his breath. Also, please do not kill me. When he turned back to the table on which she lay, Naked yet in recovered human form, he said, You will not likely remember me. We are much older now, you and I. I am Emirate Vashta of the Acolytes. You are in a tool shed. It is the best I could muster. 
We had you on scope as you left our system. We saw you intercepted sometime later. Those answering your call did not know you, but I know you, unspeakable. An EMF detonation is sufficient to offline the Antigoneans. Unfortunately, it also is sufficient to offline you. How do you feel? I mean, if you feel. She did not answer. I've thought about that day many times over the cycles that have passed, you know. What it meant that the Holy One should have held you and blessed you and loved you as one of his own. And, of course, he should have. It is what he offers to all beings. It is only we who are not like him who are stingy. Yes, I do remember you, the pastoress answered at last. You were the frightened novice monk who clung to the other one. Mm, yes, he confirmed. As bluntly and mercilessly put as I'd expect from one of your nature. I must go home, Acolyte, the pastoress said, sitting up. My vessel? The Acolyte raised an eyebrow and blinked sideways. Home, dear one. Does one in your line have a home? Just where is that? Where there is one I cannot leave in peril, she answered. There is the Crimson King. I thought the Crimson King and Pennywise were all the same thing. Move yon! He's lost his mind! Yeah, he's throwing snitches. I get it. Why didn't they just call him Snitches? It's a Harry Potter reference after all, and we all understood it. Hey, ho, hey! That almost hit me! Watch it, brother! I am the Eater of Worlds. I am the Eater of Worlds! See, Mr. Gunslinger, it's confusing, isn't it? I mean, Mordred, who's like your son, and the Crimson King's son, and then like two chicks, I don't know how that works. He turns into a spider, Pennywise turns into a spider, the Crimson King and Pennywise both call themselves the Eater of Worlds, damn near all of King's other works plays into the Dark Tower series, but no one knows if the Crimson King and Pennywise, the Dancing Clown, are the same thing. Oh, me! Oh, no, 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 no! I'll get you for that, Desolator! I don't care who or what you are! I'll make this tower fall, and then I'll rip you to shreds and feed on your flesh! Oh, 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 oh I, uh, I n- never thought I'd get oh, oh, threatened by one of my own turds! I'll kill you with my heart. 
I've been to the dark sanctum across the Valley of Woe. Oh, I, uh, I thought I itched there for a minute. Quick, while they're all distracted, it's time to storm the tower and get this Stephen King business out of the way. Jesus, Brett, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with me? There's nothing wrong with me, is there, Wilson? A beard, and what are you carrying in your hands? I'm Jonah, reborn from the belly of the beast, loin of the pork, and this is Wilson. It's a weird flesh ball thing? Puggles, why are you grabbing your crotch? Oh, uh, just making sure that isn't one of my uh, numerous balls. Are we going to have to climb all 100 floors to get to the top? You think a great writer would have built in an elevator just to pare down all the crap, you know? I mean, if you had to write about every floor of the tower at the center of the universe, it'd be another 20 books. By sweet Elagabalus, Wilson. He spoke, and it appeared. An elevator. Look at that. Did I do this, or is King allowing us to travel to the top of the tower? Oh, God, I uh, suddenly feel like I got a demigod and uh, oh, a human-sized gap to fill in my stomach. Does anybody have any crunch taters? Pig, if you touch another crunch tater in your life, I will punt you to the end of Azeroth. Seriously, Brett, what is going on? What happened to you? You're only gone for like a day, and what little hair you have is long, and you've got a beard. A day. A day. <laughs> a day. A day! <laughs> a day! I've been sustaining myself on already been shrewd crunch taters and dodging the scythe of the cult of colon-dwelling court children! Huh. Well, uh... That sounds about right. Those little bastards are survivors. I ate them a few thousand desolator taint years ago. What? It's a god thing. Time passes a little bit faster inside of our bodies. It's part of living forever. If time moved for me as slowly as it did for you, well, that'd be a shit existence. Congrats, puny mortal. You've been inside the halls of the mighty Eternitaint! Anyway, it's nearly to our floor, shall we? My god. I'm going to meet the king. What should I say? I had to cross a river of bile and babies. Just get on with it already! We're like five episodes into this! What? My god, there he is. He's facing out of the window of the highest room in the tower. And all of the beams are pumping his head full of all of the storylines across the universe. Across the multiverse, that's how he's done it. He's consuming everything and, oh, Jesus, there are tubes and incubators. Is that Joe Hill floating suspended in that green liquid? My God, is it him? Not quite. It looks like Joe Hill, but slightly better looking. And that one looks less like Joe Hill and is better looking than the last. There are rows of them working on typewriters in the first row. They go from looking like Stephen King and Joe Hill to the back. Villi were sexual in nature, and that is where I found you, sweet Wilson. Well, you've confirmed your conspiracy theory, human. King is cloning himself to hold on to his title of Master of Horror Fiction forever. You'll never have a chance at that title. Ha 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 ha! Oh, oh, wait. Oh, shit! That one kind of looks like... No! That can't be! 
can't be me. I'm one of the king's clones? Oh, take the stars out of the eyes on your quickly inflating head and look again, stupid human. Look at the literary output on those later copies as they got handsomer over time. Oh, no. No, no, no. Joe Hill looks just like his father. And he and his father are the ones producing the best-selling novels. The later copies, the better-looking ones at the back there. That's right. Jacking off on the keyboards and wiping their asses on the papers. Oh. But why? Well, at least you're the best-looking Stephen King clone. Monster Board Podcast is a production of Warped Box Media. Today's story was pastorous, a God-shaped hole by the bald one that I hate. Music by him, too. Apologies to the Stephen King estate. Hey, if you're looking for a new muse, I'd love to get the fuck away from these boobs. Never thought I'd say that about boobs. Good day, Monsterbaters. Brett here. Hey, starting today, go to monsterpornpodcast.com and hop on the Monsterporn newsletter for exclusive and bonus Monsterporn content, including Matt's new editorial, Making Monsterporn, his reflections at episode 50, and get access to our forthcoming digital magazine. Sign up today at monsterpornpodcast.com or watch our Facebook for the link. If this was your first encounter with the pastoress, you can hear about her from the beginning, starting back in episode 12. She's a regular serial on this podcast, and you can find her so far in episodes 12, 23, 29, 39, and 41. Or check out the Pastors playlist on YouTube. And no, you did not just win at bingo. Follow us on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. That's it. Thanks for 50 episodes, Monsterbaters. Until next time, stay super weird and dare I say, Godspeed, Strange Cowboy. Nope, nah. I'm not even considering that. I'm on the knife's edge as far as sanity goes. How long have we been... What did you just call the Shuggoth's mother? The pig nose. The pig nose. Day it gay mad... Oh, shit. (laughs) Day it gay adme. What did you call me? You heard me. Antis pay in an... In an... Well... uh, Odd way. Somebody's in an odd way. <laughs> in one end and out the other. Oh, <laughs> oh that hurt. <laughs> I bet it did.
from Your life. Your penis is dragging on the floor. If I had coronavirus, it is all over the planet now. <laughs> move yon, son. <laughs> when I like southern gangster move. <laughs> what up, son? <laughs> move yon. Move yon. Move yon. You move. Move yon. You yonder. Move over yonder. Move over yon. Should I say like a destination? Because otherwise it doesn't come across clearly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's throwing those snitches. I get it. Why didn't they just call it a snitch? It's a Harry Potter. It's a Harry. Harry what? It's a, it's a Harry Potter. It's a Harry Puffer. Ah. Dash Kazar is entertaining the party. Very good. God, is that you? The pastors exploded into a hovering, trembling, bluish, gel-like mass in the air, undulating with the interference patterns caused by the... In- we had you on scope as you left our system. We saw you intercepted. Fuck my ass.